And uh, he just uh, gave us a really great lesson about uh, gratitude and the importance of gratitude uh, to living a happy life and also learning to love people, which we're commanded in the Bible to do. One change to the announcement earlier made, those who are going to stay and enjoy the hospitality of the Hispanic brethren, uh, the meal will not be at uh, the Britos. It will actually be in the fellowship room. Uh, so uh, let that be known. All right, with that being said, uh, we're going to have a couple of more songs. We haven't had a prayer leader called on, right? Jay? Phil is going to pray? Okay, Phil will lead us in prayer. And then uh, uh, when we're done, Jason, would you close us in prayer uh, for the day? All right. Philippians chapter 4, the Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. One of my heroes in the faith was the late Jimmy Allen. And some 50 years ago, he wrote these words. Because sin is in the world, God wars against us. The Bible says, For this cause cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Ephesians 5, verse 6. God's wrath is an objective force now working against the sons of men. Because of sin, the angels war against us in executing God's judgment. The earth wars against us in its barrenness, floods, earthquakes, and volcanoes. God said, Cursed is the ground, Genesis 3, 17. The atmosphere wars against us in its storms, lightnings, and winds breathing pestilence. The beasts of the field war against men, thirsting for their blood and pursuing them as prey. Our fellows war against us in slander, robbery, oppression, and murder. We even war against ourselves. Our passions enslave and destroy us. Our consciences torment us with stinging remorse. Peace, peace. If there was ever a time when men needed peace, it is now. Amen. Look around at what's going on in the world. Folks butchering each other in the Ukraine, in the Middle East, in different places in Africa. In my own city of Little Rock, there are certain parts of the town that people keep their head on a swivel, especially if they're out at night, because there's always somebody out there up to no good. And I've heard even here that in Laverne, you all have had to deal with that recently, with the son of the police chief of Nashville coming down and getting involved in things. The point is this, wherever there are human beings, there's always that sense of conflict that sense of restlessness, that sense that things are not as they should be. Because they're not. Because with sin in the world, peace is an elusive goal. And the reason that peace eludes most people is because they're looking for it in the wrong places. When we think that peace can be found anywhere outside of Christ, 
We are on a fool's errand. Too often, people search desperately for peace, even as they fail to recognize the pointlessness of the life built upon anything except God. As we think about that elusive goal of peace, for the next few minutes, I want you to join with me in noticing several roadblocks that keep peace out of our lives. And if we're serious about enjoying the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, the first thing that we've got to do is clear away this detritus that would block our path to having peace. The first obstacle is that of moral confusion. What would you say is the mood of the country right now? Would you say that it's at an all-time high, that everybody's excited, or would you say it's probably a little more of the opposite? Well, you know, you know what it is as well as I do. A poll a couple of years ago taken by the American Psychiatric Association has 59% saying that, quote, this is the lowest point in our nation's history that they can remember. Now, that's probably a judgment call. As a student of history, I can point out a few times that things were actually worse. But as Ronald Reagan said, facts are stupid things. You don't want to confuse people with the facts. But the Gallup organization discovered recently that just 21% of Americans are satisfied with the direction that the country is heading in. So whether a person is religious or irreligious, it seems as if there's this sense of malaise, a sense of dissatisfaction. And in the case of some, a case of an, a sense of impending doom even would probably not be stating it too strongly. Now, some of this is due to the dissatisfaction with the divided state of politics and with our economy that, in which so many people are being left behind. I heard the other day, unemployment is at an all-time low. Someone said, well, why aren't people happy? Well, because things cost 10 times more than they used to cost. So you go to the grocery store, and I'm getting that box of cereal that used to be $2.95, and it's like $7.95. I'm like... It's an outrage. We're going to have a cereal party instead of the Boston Tea Party. A bunch of us are going to go and throw frosted flakes into the Boston Harbor. Or, or, or maybe not. I mean, you can't throw that out. It costs too much. But I think that there's a sense of unsettledness that goes deeper than just that politically things are a wreck and economically things are, you know, not as we would like for them to be. But there are some other areas that point to that moral confusion that we're recognizing. Let's talk about declining church attendance. I love what Josh said a minute ago. I, I don't think that Christianity is in retreat. The Lord's never going to be in retreat. There might be some folks that don't want in on it, but that's not the Lord's problem. That's their problem. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's where we are, okay? Let's just call it as it is. But without God at life center, everything is permissible, as Tolstoy wrote. Take away God, what, what do you have? You've got nothing. Look at the state of the family. 
Okay, we've got good families. And I'm thankful to the Lord that we have so many good marriages and good kids and, and, and good unions. But you do realize there are more people in the United States living together, cohabiting, than ever before. Used to be at one time, you know, you'd have to go and get married. You know, if, if you wanted to enjoy a healthy physical relationship with the woman of your choice. Now, just move in with her. Or short of that, just hook up with her. That's what we're seeing. And you're thinking, well, I don't remember the Lord changing the moral standards of Scripture. We've just got a bunch of people that decided they're going to write their own morality. And that's basically what they're doing. And you know what we're doing here? We're imitating, as this country has a bad habit of doing, some of the habits of the Europeans, okay? The Europeans started quit going to church. Some Americans start quit going to church. The Europeans stopped getting married. Americans stopped getting married. I guess if the Europeans start running around naked, we're going to have a bunch of nudists running around the streets of the country. I hope not, given the present state of uh, our physicality. But uh, as you look around this, I remember hearing something 15 years ago out of England, and I just kind of, hmm, one of those things. But I'm a little bit beyond hmm now. They said 15 years ago in England, the only folks getting married are gays and Muslims. Well, I can see what they were talking about now, because we got a lot of folks in America that are just opting out of this. But what that means is this. The family is in trouble. And anytime the family is in trouble, the country's in trouble. It's as simple as that. You destroy marriage. You destroy a, a, a mother and a father raising their children. And you're going to have more social pathologies than you can shake a stick at. Denzel Washington, one of the best actors of our generation, said this. It starts in the home. It starts with how you raise your children. If a young man doesn't have a father figure... He'll go find a father figure, you know, maybe in a gang, maybe with a criminal mentor. So I can't blame the system. If the streets raise you, then the judge becomes your mother and the prison becomes your home. We got too many young men throwing their lives away by going out and acting the fool. And a big reason for that is because men have largely become superfluous in most families. I did prison work in Jackson, Michigan from 1988 to 1995. I went in probably three, four times a month teaching and preaching and working with men in there. This is what we noticed. A poll came out during that time we were doing prison work. 90% of men in the prison system in Michigan grew up in homes without a father present. You think that's a coincidence? You know that it's not, okay? There is moral confusion anytime we think marriage is for suckers and a man standing around and raising his children is a fool, but that's what we're being left with. But this confusion that is eroding and undermining the family is really pushing back on morality and common sense itself. A few years ago, in fact, in two consecutive years, I experienced, I think we experienced, the greatest form of cognitive dissonance I've ever witnessed in my life. The ESPN had something called the ESPY Awards. And it was given in the name of Arthur Ashe, a great man of courage and, and, and a moral exemplar who died of AIDS because he caught AIDS from a blood transfusion. What anything he did wrong, it was because the blood system was tainted. But Ashe was a great man, so they decided to honor an athlete or someone in the sports world that displayed tremendous courage. 
And in two consecutive years, there's a picture of the two people that won it. Caitlyn Jenner and Xavion Dobson. Now, allow me a minute here. Caitlyn Jenner used to be Bruce Jenner. I know that because I had a Wheaties box and he was on it and he had his USA uh, track uh, costume there, his outfit, his uniform, and uh, he had won the decathlon in the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal. I watched it. I, I was a kid. I remember that, rooting for him. Had to win the 1500 or had, to, uh, had a certain time to win and he did it and he was rated the world's greatest athlete. And then, of course, he celebrated by leaving his wife and taking up with Elvis's girlfriend or something. I mean, anyway, it was, it was kind of a mess. It, kind of a foreshadowing of what his life was going to be about later. But you know what this is. He goes and marries uh, Robert Kardashian's widow, and they have a bunch of kids, and they're on some reality show. And then, I guess, he decided he wasn't getting enough attention, so he decided to identify as a woman. Look, it's free country. If you want to go and dress up and play uh, pretend, you can do that. But don't ask me to applaud it because I'm not going to. But the ESPY Award for Courage was given to Caitlyn Jenner. The next year, 12 months later, it was given to Xavion Dobson, the young man in the football uniform. He was from Knoxville, Tennessee. He was a high school football player. He was visiting some friends from his school, and they were sitting out on the porch just chatting, visiting with each other. When a car came up, and in a case of mistaken identity, the window rolled down, machine gun materialized, and they sprayed uh, the porch with machine gun fire. He saw the gun come out, and he threw himself in front of two of those kids and saved their lives. Now, here's what I'm asking you. Do those two things have anything in common with each other? They, they really don't, okay? If you think that those are two wonderful examples of courage, I don't even know what to tell you. Because the latter is definitely courage. The former is something else. I don't know what it is, but it's not courage. But in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, the Bible says this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And I'm afraid in our country these days, we figure as long as 51% of the people agree with anything, then it's the right thing to do. I don't care if 100% of the people agree with it. If it's against what God says, it's the wrong thing to do. You're not going to have the peace of God in your life if you're so morally confused that you think up is down and down is up and east is west and west is east. You've got to do what the Lord says to do. Again, Marshall Keeble said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's how we determine morality. It's not that we go to the polls and we vote on it. There's too much moral confusion in this country. As long as that exists, peace is going to elude us. Here's a second roadblock to God's peace in our lives. Insignificance. In Isaiah 59 and verse 2, the Bible says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The problem of humanity has always been sin. Sin remains the problem today. Nothing has changed. Nothing is new. But as our world tries to do away with the concept of sin altogether, 
We focused instead the search for meaning and significance upon ourselves rather than upon God. We keep trying to fill that God-shaped void within us with, well, us. And it doesn't work. We can't fill it up. And you, Dr. Phil is saying, how's that working out for you? Well, not too well. I had something that happened a few years ago. I'm trying to think, when, when did Obama run and when? It was 2008, 6? Anyway, one, whatever time gets away from me. So as the campaign was going, it looked like it was going to be Hillary and Obama for the Democratic nomination. So, you know, the Clintons were in Arkansas. You probably know that. So... Um, <clears throat> I can't get away. Oh, you're from Arkansas. Do you know Bill Clinton? I'm like, well, I, actually, I do. But uh, anyway, that's not really the point. So we had a guy at church. It was a big Democratic donor. And he said, you want to go over there and uh, go to a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton? I said, absolutely not. Uh, I said, have no interest in it. So a uh, couple months later, he comes. Hey, were they having that fundraiser? I said, still not interested. He said, well, she's not coming. I said, well, I just got a little more interested. Uh, I said, who's going to be there? He said, well, Bill's coming. I said, I'm interested in that. Not, you know, I didn't vote for him or anything. I just wanted to meet him. I found him kind of interesting. So we show up one night. There's 400 people shoehorned into some rich guy's house in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And the man was an hour and a half late. I'm like, how are you an hour and a half late? You know, I mean, they say he's late to everything, but anyway. I figured out why he's late. He can't stop talking to people. He loves talking to folks. And I was in the room. I was probably meeting Josh from him. And between us, there were 80 people. They were just crammed in there like lemmings and tiny metal boxes. I mean, it was, the, it was the beatenest thing you've ever seen in your life. He was going around talking to everybody in there. Josh, how you doing? Good to see you. You tell your brother I said hi. Sally, how you doing? Good to... You remember that barbecue we had? Man, that was something. I mean, he was just... And I finally got the meeting. I said, hey, you sound just like you sound on television. He looked at me like, you little smart aleck. And, uh, and, but we visited for a little bit. My wife, you know, introduced herself. And we got a picture. This is the funniest part of it. The guy that took us there that night took a picture of the three of us. It was supposed to be me and my wife, Susan, and Clinton. You got Clinton and Susan right in it, and you got the corner of my ear. That's all that was in it. I'm like, man, you stink as a photographer, my friend. But here's the point of me telling you this long, generally pointless story. Most of the people in that room, they just wanted to know somebody famous. They just wanted to go ahead and identify with that person. And because identifying with a famous person, that kind of makes you famous. Rubbing up against someone who's important, well, that makes you important. And that's what we've become. Think about social media, you know. Twitter or X, now they call it, Facebook, you know, any of that. What, what do you want? You want likes. You want retweets, you know, repost. You want this. You want a hundred person liked what you said. What is that about? It's about boosting ourselves, basically. Fan clubs like that encourage secondhand living. And through pictures or memorabilia, autographs or tourist visits, we always want to be around somebody who's richer or prettier, or more handsome, or more accomplished, or more famous than ourselves, because deep down inside, we really don't think that there's anything special about us. And that's what this is. We think we're insignificant, and we're searching for significance. Look, the fact that God made you and that God loves you makes you significant. Amen. But when people move away from that, 
They're desperate to attach some type of significance to themselves. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this. We do this because we're convinced that we're plain and ordinary. The town or city that we live in, the friends we're stuck with, the families or marriages that we have all seem undramatic. So we surround ourselves with evidence of someone who is. We stock our fantasies with images of a person who's living more adventurously than we are. And we have enterprising people around us who provide us, for a fee of course, with the material to fuel the fires of vicarious living. There's something sad and pitiful about the whole business, but it flourishes nonetheless. And you tell me I'm not telling the truth. You see all these folks, they put something on Facebook, and all they're doing is they're riding around on jet skis, and they're drinking champagne, and they're rubbing elbows with the president. Or I'm like, no, they're not. I know you people. You're going to the Piggly Wiggly, and you're looking for some Triscuits that are on sale, and maybe you're going to McDonald's on the way. Nothing wrong with any of that, but we always want, to think, we always want people to think that we're greater than what we are because we're not comfortable being ourselves. For exhibit A, I give you this bunch, the Kardashians. Why are they famous? Why are they rich? Why am I talking about them? Take those pictures down because they're getting on my nerves. Okay, here's the thing. As long as we're seeking meaning and purpose and excitement outside of God, we doom ourselves to frustration. Self-promotion Self-gratification and self-improvement are not making things better. You know what it's leading to? Opioid addiction, suicide, overdoses. All of these things are at all-time highs. On our radio show yesterday, we had two guys from the Little Rock Police Department, and they said the biggest problem we've got right now is drug overdoses. And I said, well, what, what, what's happening? It's changed the game. And they, uh, fentanyl. Said fentanyl. I said, how many of the deaths that we've had this year in our city have been to do fentanyl? He said, 80%. Why are people taking this stuff when they know it can kill them? Because they're looking for a thrill. They're looking for something exciting because they're not exciting and they don't matter. And they've been told that so much that they bought into this. It's only by finding our identity in Christ that this is going to stop. It's only by being in Christ that we're going to find significance. It's only by living the life of faith that we become God's partners in what he's doing and bringing the world back to himself. Only those who are conscious of participating in what God is saying and doing are the most fully human, the most fully alive. Only those who know God know peace. The ones who don't know God do not know peace. They might give you the illusion that they do, but they don't. They're struggling. They're searching. They're desperately trying to find something that they're not going to find. Again, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to us, says Paul. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. No amount of social media friends, likes, or followers, or meeting Bill Clinton. How you doing, Chuck? Good to see you. 
That's not going to bring significance to our lives. It's just not. Only knowing God and living for Him will do that. So if you're here today and you feel like, you know, well, I don't really matter. There's nothing special about me. Listen, quit listening to that nonsense. You are more special than you know. You're special because God says that you're special. Not because anybody in the world. Who cares what those folks think anyway? I quit thinking about what people think a long time ago. I'm desperately concerned with what God thinks about me. And if God thinks that I'm okay, then I'm okay. And if, if he doesn't, then I'm not. It's as simple as that. So insignificance is a barrier to knowing God's peace in our lives. Here's the third one. Hypocrisy. You notice that Jesus was pretty cool about most things and toward most people. Until he came into the presence of people who were possessors of master's degrees in hypocrisy. And Jesus usually went scorched earth on that bunch. Jesus didn't like people pretending to be one thing when in actuality they were something else. And that's something that our world is just full up with. David French makes an interesting observation. He says, the demise of religion among American youth is exaggerated. It turns out that America isn't raising a new generation of unbelievers. Instead, rising in the heart of deep blue America are the zealots of a new religious faith. They're the intersectionals, they're fully woke, and the heretics don't stand a chance. Now, if you're concerned what French means by that, let me allow him to define it himself. He says, intersectionality can roughly be defined as the belief that oppression operates in complicated, interlocking ways. So the experience of, say, a white trans woman is different in important ways from the experience of a black lesbian. A white trans woman will experience the privilege of her skin, but also oppression due to her gender identity. A black lesbian may experience the privilege of cis gender identity, but also oppression due to race and sexuality. It's identity politics on steroids, where virtually every issue in American life can and must be filtered through the prisms of race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Have you noticed that most of those under 30 have very different views on these things than you do? It's not a coincidence. That's real. Are there problems with this new faith of wokeism or intersectionality? Well, where to begin? Number one, it is opposed to the God who made them male and female. I find this fascinating that people who are always saying, we believe in science. We don't believe in that biblical mumbo-jumbo that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We believe in science. Really? You also believe that there are 146 different genders. Bet me. Okay, that's not it. You know that's not it. God made them male and female. I find it really funny that animals walking around in the field can figure this out, but people with PhDs from Harvard can't. Okay, you know good and well, God made them male and female. I heard one scientist say recently, there are 146 different genders. Really? How about 146,000 different genders? I mean, if we're just, just keep making things up. 
Kind of like Hinduism. Somebody was asked about how many gods and goddesses are there in Hinduism. They said infinity. Really? Infinity? I'm like, go away, boy, you bother me. Uh, this is not religion, okay? It's not science either. I'm not quite sure what it is. What it is is rather maddening. But it's also in opposition to God because God ordered the world the way that he did, and we got a bunch of folks that don't like the way he's ordered it, so they're trying to reorder it themselves. Here's another problem. It is toxic to the goal of unity and harmony between people. Have you noticed how everything is about identity politics? Everything is about identity. Okay, look, I'm not one of these people that is threatened by things that have happened before. I find it funny that we got in some places in the country, we can't talk about that. Why? That might make somebody feel bad. What, slavery? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, it should, but the, this is what happened. Can we talk about it? No. No, it's too soon. Too soon? I, I mean, this is where we are? I mean, the truth has nothing to fear from honest inquiry, my friends. I was preaching a sermon a couple of years ago. I can tell you when it was. It's 2021 because the next day after that Sunday was the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Now, they used to call it the Tulsa Race Riot, in which it sounded like a bunch of black folks uh, uh, just started trouble. Go look it up and see what it was, okay? The Greenwood area in Tulsa was called Black Wall Street. The folks there were doing exceedingly well, and there were a bunch of, of white, lower-class folks that were jealous, and they started trouble. And they started shooting people, and they started torching buildings. And it was just a horrible time. And I mentioned that. It was like the last five minutes of the sermon. We had this family that they left after that. And the elders asked, well, why'd you leave? We don't want to hear that stuff. Really? You don't want to hear that stuff? It's been 100 years. I figure enough time's gone by. Thankfully, that family was back last Sunday. First time in two years. But friends, we're not going to stop telling the truth. Just because somebody don't want to hear something, we're going to talk about this. But if we're never going to have unity and harmony, if we can't tell the truth, if we can't identify, if we can't say, you know, that happened and that was wrong. And thank God we can do better than that. And we're going to do better about that. And that's really where we need to be. Here's another thing about that. It is enforced, this new faith, by those whose morality is arbitrary, capricious, and fluid. In other words, we're taking moral cues from people that wouldn't know morality if it fell on their head and smothered them. Don't take my word for it. Take the critique of a non-preacher by the name of Bill Maher. In the middle of all this woke stuff, this is what he said on Twitter. Someone has to explain how in the age of Me Too... The number one movie in America is about a woman wearing a dog collar on a leash. That's that Fifty Shades of Grey, for those of you that don't know. You see what's built into this? This is called cognitive dissonance again, holding two opposite views at the same time. So on the one hand, America's saying we should listen to women if women have been uh, attacked, and if they've been uh, molested, manipulated. Absolutely, okay, absolutely we should. At the same time, you got a bunch of people that are celebrating women getting beaten and dragged around like, uh, you see the problem with this? That's Hollywood. Hollywood is a sick, perverted place. 
They are not for God. They're not for the things of God. The hypocrisy is just off the charts with this. Uh, ratings for the Academy Awards a couple of years ago when all this was going were at all-time lows. Some have suggested that that's because a lot of people in America are sick of being lectured about morality by an industry that has deified and defended Roman Polanski, has been ruled by Harvey Weinstein, and has its glitzy award show hosted by an ex-man show host whose contribution to society was giving the world girls in bikinis jumping on trampolines. You see a problem with that? There's a big problem with that. I don't want to hear what these people have to say about anything because they're hypocrites. Now, let's turn the lens on us for just a minute. We also hear a lot about hypocrisy in the church. Are there hypocrites in the church? Yeah, unfortunately. And if that's us, we need to knock it off. Amen. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to change. But here's the thing. Hypocrisy is endemic in the world. It's everywhere. It's at the grocery store. It's at the bank. It's at the Walmart. You don't quit going to those places. But I always find it irritating to hear people, I wouldn't go to church. I'm better than all those hypocrites in there. I'm like, well, probably not. But here's the thing. Okay, there's hypocrites at the church. There's hypocrites everywhere. What we need to do about that is what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 26. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. I look at Hollywood and just shake my head. These people can't teach me or my kids or my grandkids about anything because they don't know about anything. Once in a while, they might make a good movie. I saw a good one the other day, Killers of the Flower Moon. Pretty powerful. I would tell you this, you better be able to time your bathroom breaks because it's three hours and 40 minutes. That's a long movie, okay? That's like two movies into one. I was really impressed. I only had to get up once. But here's the thing. If you're looking for... If you're looking for a game plan about morality, don't take it from Hollywood. Don't take it from Madison Avenue. Don't take it from Washington, D.C. You go to the Bible, my friend, because the God who made us is the one who knows best how we should live. It's as simple as that. So the world might be telling you one thing. Your neighbors might be saying something else. You listen to God, and you're going to be able to get past this hypocrisy that has hamstrung people and kept them from enjoying the peace of God. Finally, number four, the last thing that's keeping us in so many instances from God's peace is insecurity. We're just looking for security. We're looking to be safe. And yet, that too is a bit of an illusion. Helen Keller from Tuscumbia, Alabama said this, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men experience it as a whole. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. I've got this friend, uh, and he says this to me all the time. He doesn't mean anything by it, but I just always kind of, I kind of snicker every time he says this. Every time we're together, we eat lunch, we go to church together, whatever, whenever I see him, last thing he always says when I leave, be safe, be safe. And I was thinking, it's not up to me. 
I don't know if the drunk driver is going to plow into me today. I don't know if the asteroid coming toward the earth is going to hit because Bruce Willis failed to hit the depth of 850 feet when he was drilling. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, okay? So, you know, be safe, be safe. How about this? Just be prepared to meet the Lord whenever he's going to come back. When the Lord's ready, I'm ready, okay? I'm not, oh, oh, my house is in order. I'm ready, okay? I'm not, tomorrow, Lord willing, I read James. I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to aim it west, and I'm going to go toward Little Rock, Arkansas. And probably I'll get home safe. And maybe I won't, I don't know. I'm good either way. But I'm not going to be ruled by fear. One of the things that has really annoyed me the last few years is how our country responded to COVID. Okay, we had people and, and churches were divided by this. I don't think most of the churches in Tennessee and Alabama, from what I've heard, but we had a bunch of in Arkansas, they were losing their minds about this. And uh, we had some folks that, uh, you know, you better wear the mask. And then other folks, I'm not wearing the mask. And I'm like, how am I supposed to preach to all this bunch? Because, you know, it's like they fight worse than the Republicans and the Democrats. But everybody's fighting about this and fighting about that. And here's what we have determined. You're not going to have one size fits all. You're not going to have one answer that pleases everybody. We just did the best that we could for the, the greatest number. And we tried to be sensitive to everybody's need. But I got so, I got so frustrated with people like, oh, COVID, you know, COVID's still here. I'm like, yeah, so's the common cold, so's the flu, okay, and my back hurts, so what are you going to do about that? You look, in this world, you will have trouble. I think Jesus said that. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So if we're constantly worried about what's going to happen to us, we're not going to be at peace with God. Is that like, oh, oh, there's somebody over there? I, look, we got security cameras. We got gated communities. We got guns, we got border walls, we got all kinds of health scares. Have you noticed there's no shortage of things to panic about? There's always something to panic about. But doesn't the Bible say we walk by faith and not by sight? How can we say that if I'm terrified of everything that can happen? Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. I've noticed something. The people that don't fear God fear everything else. The people who fear God fear nothing else. And I want to be that person. I want to be that way. But if you're constantly trying to build a fortress around you and be secure, it's not going to work. And you're not going to know God's peace. I'll give you an example as we close. My hometown of Flint, Michigan, serves as a reminder that this world is anything but secure. In the 1950 census, Flint was the wealthiest city per capita in America. There are some reasons for that. It was the birthplace of General Motors. You may have heard of that company before all those punks at Nissan and Toyota started eating up their market share. I know where I am, okay, that was a joke. Don't get offended if some of you guys are the foreman over there. General Motors and Flint practically invented the middle class as Southerners flocked to Flint for well-paying jobs to support their families. You know how I ended up in Flint? 
I was born in Sykeston, Missouri. My mom and dad moved to Flint when they were young, when I was six months old, so my dad could get a job in the auto factories, where he would work for 50 years, and he did pretty well. Well, as I mentioned, in 1950, Flint was doing better than everywhere. Well, the last 40 years have not been quite as kind to Flint, and uh, really the last 70 years, I guess you could say. But a host of factors led General Motors to take jobs from Flint. There used to be 90,000 General Motors jobs in Flint. Today, I think it's around between five and 6,000. General Motors, a few years ago, as you might remember, declared bankruptcy, making investors in the world's most successful business juggernaut lose fortunes, life savings, and retirements. You know, my mom and dad still do pretty well, but all my dad's General Motors stock, worthless. My dad's retirement slashed by 50%. Usually, you figure you were General Motors and, you know, you're bulletproof until that happened. Well, did that affect Flint? Just a little bit. Flint went from being the nation's wealthiest city in 1950 to being the poorest in 2010. 60 years. Top to the bottom. And when a cash-strapped city tried to save money by changing its water supply, it touched off a comedy of errors that turned out to be disastrous where it ended up poisoning its own citizens with lead in the water. That's probably going to cost billions to fix, but it's not going to help those people uh, who've already been compromised. A couple of years ago, Netflix released a documentary series called Flint Town. And for people around the world, it was a fascinating curiosity. But for those of us who remember what Flint used to be, it just want to made you cry. You know, my mom and dad are um, typical old people. They can't figure out how to get Netflix because you got to use three different remotes and all that. So we had it at our house, and we invited them over, and we watched the whole series of Flint Town. And I could see my folks, and they got really quiet because they lived there for 50 years. They raised their sons there, and uh, they had a really good life. My dad was an elder in the church there, and you could just see them. It hurt to see a place that they loved just go off the edge of the cliff, and that's what happened. Remember what Helen Keller said? Security is mostly a superstition. If you think that you can get enough money and enough investments and, and just put everything in your life in the proper place and nothing can touch you, my friend, you're mistaken. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. Security does not exist in this world. It exists only in God. Listen to this from 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We're not promised a life free from the troubles of this world. There are no guarantees of security where we're always going to be in good health, our money is always going to be plentiful, nothing ever happens to our kids or our grandkids, nobody ever makes any bad decisions, nobody ever is in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, 
You just can't live life that way. Again, we close with John 16, 33. We've only quoted it three times. Why not four? I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Here's where this comes down. Are you looking for peace in your life? Everyone wants that. Everyone wants to be content. Everyone wants to have significance and meaning, a future that's going to be flourishing and glimmering. You can have those things in Christ, but if you search for those things in the world, you're going to come up empty, disappointed, frustrated. I've done a lot of funerals over the years. Josh, I've noticed something in all those funerals. I've yet to see one of those caskets stuffed with money. Because you can't take it with you, okay? And at the end of life's little day, if Jesus delays in returning long enough, which to this point he has, one day we're all going to die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. Here's something I figured out. It only took my hard head six decades to do it, but thank God I got there. Life's not going to work out maybe exactly as I planned it to. I'm not going to be free from the problems of the world. I see these clowns, uh, these televangelists on TV. If you follow Jesus, all your problems are going to disappear. You're like, shut up. Let the adults talk, okay? Here's what the adults have to say. You're still going to have problems. But Jesus will help you deal with those problems. He'll help you. And when life's little day comes to a close, he'll bring you to himself to dwell eternally. That's the peace that we can know. There ought to be something so different about God's people and the folks in the world that aren't God's people that there is just a, a palpable difference, and that's what it is. That we're not going to be worried. We're not going to be burdened. We're not going to be fearful. We're not going to be grasping for significance or trying to make ourselves something more than what we are. Who cares about that? Just know the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Live for the Lord. And then one day, you'll be able to die with the Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Don't you know that those of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism, that in the same way that the power of God brought Jesus up from the grave, that we too will be raised to live a new life. To walk in newness of life. What a marvelous phrase that is. And he said, if we've died like this with Christ, we will also be raised like this in Christ. Now, does that mean anything to you? It doesn't mean something to me. It means everything to me. Because that means that anything that this world has got in store for me, I can deal with it. I can handle it. Some things will be worse than others, but we'll get through these things. Because we have the promises of God. These two brothers, uh, Jeff and Dale Jenkins, they mean a lot to me. I know they mean a lot to Josh. They just meant, uh, they've meant so much. They're two of the best encouragers of preachers 
and churches I've ever come across in my life. But I still remember uh, the sermon that, that Jeff preached uh, on Peter's epistle about the great and precious promises of God. That's just tattooed into my brain. But of all the problems that we have in the world, and we have them, okay, they're there. Don't try to pretend like they don't exist. We also have a promise for God that checks every one of those problems off and pushes it aside. It's as if the Lord came here to suffer and struggle and go through the same temptations, the same problems that you and I face to show us you don't have to give up because there's hope. Friends, that's peace. When we know that, that's peace. It makes it possible to deal with all the other problems in the world. So in just a minute, as we stand and sing this invitation song, I ask one question for you. Are you experiencing that peace right now? Or have you allowed something else, whatever it is, maybe something small, maybe something seemingly insignificant, to rob you of that peace? God wants you to know that peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a quote from Rudyard Kipling, and I love this so much. He said, if you can keep your head while all others about you are losing it and blaming it on you, you'll be a man, my son. And I think that's a perfect quote for God's people. If we can be the kind of men and the kind of women, while the world is going crazy, while the world is losing its mind, and we're thinking, I'm not going to lose my mind because I know the one in whom I have believed. That's where we are. Do you know that kind of peace today? If you don't, please let the Lord restore that to you. If you need to come, we invite you to do so while we stand and sing. Oh,